Have you seen me dice bag? The Grognard Files. Hello, my name is Dirk the Dice, and this is the Grognard Files podcast, where we talk bobbins about tabletop RPGs from back in the day and today. This is a bonus part of episode 43, which is all about Dungeons and Dragons. I've scooped up this additional segment that was lying on the cutting room floor by popular demand, well, 50-odd people on Twitter. Me and my co-host, Blythe, look in detail at a copy of Dragon Magazine, issue 52, from August 1981. This edition coincided with the release of Moldvay's version of basic D&D rules and it received some coverage, comparing his rule set with the earlier Holmes edition. Dragon was an elusive magazine for us as it only seemed available at an import price from the comic book store Odyssey 7 in Manchester. We weren't D&D players at this time, so it passed us by. We were White Dwarf readers, which is why in this segment we frequently compare Dragon to it. During the discussion, I try and put my finger on why I can't quite buy into the rise and rise of so-called F20 games in all of their incarnations, despite my keenness to revive some of the classic adventures that can be found in these vintage magazines. It's a subject that we will return to when we review 2020 next month, There just seems to be something missing, but I'm struggling to appreciate what it is exactly. If there is something missing from the classic D&D in all its variants, Dragon was keen to fill them as it was packed with material. New classes, new guides for existing classes, backgrounds for characters, and so on and so on. It's a cornucopia of delights, which I'm sure you'll enjoy discovering with us. If you're a Patreon member, you'll find a reference copy in the Grog Locker for your personal use. Before we start, this is a review from Jem Gilbert on the grognardfiles.com site. The D&D episode has struck a chord. The podcast is basically an oral history of how the hobby in the UK started, almost completely dependent on a single communications vehicle, White Dwarf first became almost impossible to maintain for many people, especially outside urban centres, and once that vehicle had been repurposed as a pure advert for lead miniatures, and how that hobby then became gradually easier and easier for people to pursue and develop once the internet opened up so many possibilities for peer-to-peer communication, from forums to podcasts to social media. The internet has done a lot of bad things, but it's also made possible things that some of us always wanted to do, like meet people and play games with them, or just give them a load of old games, but we were physically unable to do before. For me, the Grog Pod is a fascinating and lively document of that history that we're all still living through. Thank you for that. So, why did this segment end up on the cutting room floor? Well, It didn't quite hit the marks that we needed. Plus, we go on and on for a bit too long. But you don't need to listen to any of these bobbins. 
but we're here if you want us. Okay, ramblers, let's get rambling. Library use! Welcome to the room of role-playing rambling. I've got Blythe with me. Hello, Blythe. Hello, Dirk. Uh, we're doing this again on a Saturday morning. A cup of tea in hand and a nice fresh orange. Fresh orange, yeah. I'm not touching it while we're recording because I've been accused of lip smacking and I'm, I'm not doing that. Now, normally, uh, what we used to do back uh, a couple of years ago, we used to go up into the attic, didn't we? It was called Attic Attack. We would go through boxes that contained yeah. uh, golden nuggets from the past. You know, they used to contain crisp packets, but now they've got various artifacts and um, tomes from the past. But <laughs> Because of lockdown in 2020, that hall has shrunk to such a degree that everything has to come to us because we can't yeah. get up to it. The hall shrunk. It's nothing to do with us not going out, drinking lots of beer. Eating crisps. <laughs> so this is this is a bit where we look at vintage magazines. And uh, in a break from the usual format that we only established once, we're only going to look at one single magazine. Uh, but we'll come on to that in a minute. One of the reasons I think that D&D still endures and has inspired the revival or OSR, you know, the Renaissance, is that there is such a great back catalogue of material that you can tap into through magazines. Yeah, there is. I mean, this this particular issue that we're going to look at is packed full of, um, full of stuff, isn't it? It's quite amazing how much stuff there is in one issue, really. Yeah. You know, a lot of discussion about, about D&D and extra bits and pieces and that kind of thing. And particularly for us, because we didn't particularly use that material in magazines uh, back in the day, revisiting it now, it feels like um, discovering it for the first time. So uh, last year we uh, did Ember Trees and we played that, didn't we? But in a very peculiar way uh, back in the day, we thought we'll go back to that because it is a very uh, atmospheric, very English uh, scenario and we thought we'd uh, go back to it and uh, rediscover it and we used a uh, black hack to do it it didn't really seem to take off why do why do you think that is strange isn't it i mean that the whole kind of osr thing the, the, a lot of them are about and black hack in particular i think is about stripping stripping D back isn't it the kind of dnd retro clone strip it back there's a there's a there's a branch of gaming where people like to do that even if it's not based on dnd which Black Hack is, is, is based around D&D, isn't it? Even if it's not based around D&D, they're, they're very kind of minimalists, I think. So you've got some that uh, take D&D as a framework and then strip it back even more, and others that, whilst they're not, kind of categorised as OSR, but they're not necessarily D&D, but they have that kind of minimalist, stripped-back feel to them, which I suppose that people who, who some people who, who like that kind of thing or create those kind of things, would allude to very early forms of D&D where some people would say the rules were, were rubbish and weren't there, and other people would say they're quite light rules. I mean, there's a, there's a good example, actually, and we'll all come on to the magazine in a minute, but there's a good example in the magazine where somebody talks about the three, the three little uh, brown books and the original D&D and one of their players playing a dragon because there's nothing in those rules to say you can't play a, a monster. And I suppose some OSR and some of this simple stuff is is trying to get back to that idea that what what are the bare minimum rules you need to play these games? And Black Hack's a bit like that. It kind of looks at D&D and says, right, well, what, what do you really need to play this game? But, but whether that is satisfying, 
yeah. is, is debatable. I, I'm, I think I'm a little bit more, I think it's fair to say, I'm a little bit more in tune with it than you are. I think you find it less satisfying than me. Yeah. I quite like Black Hack, but you, you weren't so keen, were you? No. I just, I just don't think it gives you enough um, options and flavour, particularly when you've got a rich setting. And some of these OSR games are mechanics in search of a setting aren't they because it's so generic it kind of boils out and boils away all the flavor in some cases i think i find it interesting how you use uh, midlands for example which is a great rich yeah. setting yeah. great fun but you've not really settled on a system that can best draw out what's good about the setting you're right i, I, I love the midlands i think it's an absolutely fantastic setting it's just full of kind of richness and color and ideas and that kind of thing one of those settings that when you read the books loads of ideas flow from it and i've used a variety of games um but I, in a way i think that, that kind of backs up your argument that the osr thing where these games are stripped back and seem perhaps to be lacking uh, a bit of meat on the bone once you, I suppose, when you throw them into an interesting setting, the systems do work a little bit better. So when you do OSR stuff in the Midlands, it works better because the setting puts that meat on the bone for you and f- plumps up the game a little bit more. If that makes sense, you know. But on on their own, yeah, there can sometimes be a little bit of it seems a bit empty as if what one was supposed to do with it. And I think I think another thing with some of the simple OSR systems is. Um, and you wonder whether this is where some of the popularity comes from, because it does for me, is convention games. Because I think something like Black Hack is great for conventions because you can roll your characters at the table. It's very simple to understand, and you can get playing the game very, very quickly. Because there are two big bugbears with convention games, aren't there? One is creating pre-gens. It's a pain in the neck for the game master, and sometimes players find it a bit, unsatisfactory because they have to play a character that they've been given rather than one they want to play so simple osr games and simple systems allow you to create characters at the table which is when i've done that that's great because people feel a connection with the character because they're playing something they want to play Um, and similarly another bugbear of conventions is explaining rules people sit down and you say i haven't played this game before and they all go no no i'm very keen to try it and part of you thinks, all right, here we go. I'm going to have to explain it all to you now, aren't I? And we're going to spend the next two hours people scratching their heads, which is just fine because I've done that as a player. But the OSR games, people hit the ground running almost. So I've played some Best Left Buried, which again, I mean, I keep saying OSR, but it's a kind of odd, odd phrase, isn't it? Very disputed. But that's a, a simple, simple set of mechanics um, in the. It's not based like it's not based on D and D, but it's in the vein of those kind of games, and it's good because half an hour in, everyone gets it. So I, I think something like Black Hack, maybe if you were playing that, planning on playing that over the course of a year, every week, you might find it it's lacking a bit, and you want a bit more meat in your game system. But for one shots and conventions, they're really really good games because you can just get people into it very very quickly and focus on what matters, which is the scenario not not the rule set you hit the nail on the head i think because i started with ember trees with the ambition of not just doing the 
scenario that appears in White Dwarf, but to go on to Starstone, which is the campaign pack Paul Vernon wrote as a companion um, to it. And there's just something about it, just something about this, um, the history of the place that, you know, it's something very evocative about the woods and the gothic and the way that it was illustrated I really wanted to tap into that and uh, as you say maybe Black Hack was the wrong choice to try and delve into what it offers it, it, I'm currently uh, looking at uh, Dragon Warriors the Dave Morris uh, and Oliver Johnson game and uh, that has more of that sensibility that fits that world of Ember Trees and a bit more to it and I think it's fair to say we're not we're, we're not just picking on Black Hack because um, I like Black Hack, uh, but I think it's those all those games that have very stripped back rules. You you sometimes wonder whether how how much fun would they be long term if you can't do much with your character and there's only a certain set of rules that you're playing. You know, yeah. good good example. I mean, it's the kind of flip side to Conan, two D twenty Conan, isn't it? Which where we, we that's quite a crunchy system and, and there's lots of rules and little moves and complexities to it and the first couple of sessions we were scratching our head a bit but once you got into it it added a bit more to the flavor you know so that's that's the the benefit of those crunchier systems they they give you a bit more when you persevere but if you want something quick and easy round a table with people at convention some of these simpler games are, are far better i think so we're going to look at one magazine which is a treasure trove of material that you can dive into and extract just one magazine from uh, 1981 dragon number 52 and the reason why we're drawn to this i don't have many copies of uh, dragon you didn't really uh, see them i don't know whether they were more expensive to buy and i just passed over them i think they were more expensive and i think um also i mean certainly in 81 we weren't playing dnd were we um we came to D and D a bit later, didn't we? Uh, as we said, but so so I suppose we we glossed over it a bit because it's a treasure trove. But it it does have non D and D things in, but but by and large it's about D and D and A D and D. So we we would probably have thought I'll spend my pocket money on a white dwarf rather than a dragon because it's does more content that I'm in that that's relevant to me in it. But um, we're drawn to this one because this was issued around the same time uh, as uh, Basic uh, Dungeons and Dragons, and that's the topic of this uh, uh, podcast. And uh, yeah, it gets a, it gets a couple of articles in there, doesn't it? Well, there's there's two articles, isn't there? There's one by Tom Moldvay and one by by Holmes, and it, it's about the Moldvay reissue the the. Uh, Basic D and D by Moldvay, so it's commentary by Moldvay on his view of what he's done to the game, and then there's a Holmes commentary on what he thinks of it, because his edition is the the one preceding that, I think, isn't it? In the, yes, in yes. The long lineage of editions. <laughs> Correct yeah. me if I'm wrong. People will. Um, well, well Moldvay, Moldvay took the Holmes edition, didn't he? Yeah, and, exactly. Uh, yeah, yeah. So Holmes, Moldvay talks about about what he's done. Uh, with it which is interesting and possibly i think being more interesting is holmes's view on it whilst they don't explicitly say it there is still this underlying sense that it's a game for beginners they both talk about how they they produced it to get people into the hobby and that kind of thing so there's still that sense of 
hey, everyone, it's still a beginner's game. It's not for you because you know what you're doing. It's for these other people who are beginners. <laughs> so in a way, they kind of <laughs> defeat themselves a little bit. Don't quite say it like that, but they do. There is that sense, I think, in there for both of them that this is about how do we structure this game so people can get into it. But by implication, it's almost it's saying, well, yeah, but you're already into it, aren't you? Because you're reading Dragon Magazine, so it's not for you. Reading it, there is that interesting kind of um, not a tug of war, but debate going on about how the game should work. And it's interesting to read it now because you realise that even in 81, it's still a relatively new hobby and people are still getting to grips with how these things should work and what the best approach should be. You know, so when you talk about D&D having all these edition wars, it really comes back to the fact that D&D was the very first role-playing game and it's been constantly built upon. And back in 1981, you've got Tom Mulvey and Holmes kind of not arguing because they are very civil about it. They're not, they're not having a pop at each other really, but having this kind of, in their each in each article having a polite debate about what they really think the game should be like and how it should be played and that kind of thing you know so Holmes kind of defends the combat system by saying it, it's the best combat system out there because it emulates heroic fantasy it, it's not about simulation those kind of debates are going on and starting and that's not I suppose those debates have never really never really gone away but you can see where they come from in these two articles because it's it's a hobby right in its infancy uh, going through it though uh, reading between the lines there is a third person in this marriage though isn't there very much <laughs> yes dominating uh, things because the relationship was different wasn't it because uh, Eric Holmes went to Guy Gax and said I'll create a game I'll, I'll create a version of the game for beginners but Mulvey is coming from a different place where he is being supervised by Gygax to re-edit the rules. And Mulvey articulates some of the differences of opinion that he had with uh, Gygax, particularly around magic, because mm. he originally suggested a points-based system for magic, which was resisted. And, and a lot of the debate as well is around um, terminology as well. So there's a little bit where Holmes praises Mulvey for getting turns and rounds correct and clear and not mixing them up and you read you read that and you think i wonder if would you mix them up this this struggling maybe with some of the concepts that now you take for granted and you kind of forget that i think you forget that that we've we've poked fun at old school games and we'll continue to do so let's face it but again the, the thing you forget is that some of these old school games or the really beginnings of role playing they were struggling with some of the concepts that now we just take for granted you just think well, why, why why is that diff- why is why is mixing up turns and rounds a and problem why would you that, even do that you know? and that's why it's an astonishing uh, article isn't it because what mm. you what you're witnessing is the iterative process in which yes. these things that we use now um, begin to be built and you realize that these things grew organically through play and people arguing yes. whether the fire yes. and forget method of uh, spell casting was appropriate or you know it, or was it just stupid and and those debates still continue don't they 
yeah they they continue but not it's not quite in the same way because as i say what what you realize in this is that there's issues around terminology and all sorts of things that these days are not are not issues you know yeah people might argue about the you know cast and forget system in D&D whether they like it or not but at this point in time there's there's a bit a bit more than that going on isn't there? the whole the whole kind of terminology thing about he talks about armor doesn't he and um Holmes again he kind of says about Moldvit praises him for reducing the number of armor options to just three you know leather chain mail and plate and that's it so that's kind of a good a good thing you know he's sort of interesting to to read it I think the other interesting thing which has quite made me laugh actually is at the bottom of the article there's a disclaimer isn't there um to say that it's that these views the views in the article are not the views of Dragon magazine or its employees or something along something along yeah. those lines which is kind of hilarious because you think well what are you expecting yeah <laughs> come on, guess i mean what because there's, there's like a line about um cure light wounds you know whether it should you know i think holmes says oh well, i don't think it should cure paralysis you know it just cures wounds but Moldvay makes says that it cures paralysis now cure light wounds there's going to court this yes sir I put my, it to my, you, sir, that cure light wounds. My learned friend has uh, come forward with this idea that paralysis can be cured by cure light I, I put it to you, nonsense. sir, paralysis, paralysis is not a wound. It is a condition, and therefore should not be cured by cure light wounds. It's a bit bonkers, but it made me laugh because it's just that thing with TSR and back in those days. It's so litigious, you know, trademarking everything. Isn't this why... It is so packed full of material, this magazine, because the level of punditry and dispute and mm. done it, which should probably be done on forums now, but to some extent they've they've gone, haven't they? Because people have uh, simplified matters and kind of worked through these, but because it's like a big article about uh, clerics, and again, it's just mm. make clerics more interesting to play so that they're not just um, ambulance men in the party. Um, you know, yeah. it's trying to fix all these things all these things are being debated and fit they want to tie these down when a sort of mate it's a bit like the virtual referee in football isn't it be careful what you wish for because when all these things are settled there'll be nothing left to talk and argue about yeah well the cleric article i tried reading that i fell asleep through it obviously fell asleep (laughs) halfway through so boring but um yeah you're right and and it's a different attitude if they are they are trying to pin down all these all these things like there's there's a questions and answers section isn't there where people have written in with questions things like can can evil clerics cast can, they can, again back to cure light wounds can evil clerics cast cure light wounds are they allowed to or is it always cause light wounds and the, the answer's like well yeah but if they're curing an evil evil creature then that that is essentially okay you know then they're not allowed to do good with their cure light wounds. But if they're curing a monster that that is evil, that is essentially an evil act. And this kind of thing, it's like kind of weird, like a weird branch of philosophy almost, isn't it? That's that's breaking out amongst these people. It's all these, the minutiae of the questions, you know, can I do this? Can I do that? You know. Well, isn't that what makes uh, the hobby exciting and interesting? It gives us uh, material. My favourite question, without doubt, amongst these, and this is a question I put to you, is um, when it come, <laughs> comes to resurrection. We don't like resurrection anyway, do we? See, uh, no, no. see, see, Grog pods pass him, but resurrection, yeah. Hmm. Should you be able to resurrect 
an undead? What's stopping you to resurrecting an undead? Well, I I don't know. Is there a time is there a time limit on um time limit on resurrection for a kickoff? So I think if they've been undead for a long time, you can't resurrect them. I'm sure there's some time limit on the spell. If not, should be. Yeah, I know what you mean. If an animated skeleton comes out, you can you resurrect them? <laughs> Get skin back again and all. Yeah. There's, but I think there's a time limit. There's a, there's a, the, what they're saying here is that you couldn't do it on an ethereal uh, entity. Mm. But if you've got the, the the bones and flesh, then there's no reason why you shouldn't be able to. Yeah, yeah. master's discretion. And I suppose if if a if a player character is killed and then an evil sorcerer in in the the same in the combat raises them as a zombie, you could cast resurrection and that would reverse it. I think, yeah. But Interesting. I don't know. I think there's a. I'm sure there's. A, I'm sure in later. Well, if you're talking about it then, maybe. But I'm sure in later games, there's like a time limit. Recently dead. I don't think you can go and get an ancient vampire. You could, could you kill a vampire with resurrection. <laughs> so we've done we've said these questions are, are answered but they're not they're not, they're not. <laughs> you could go on and on and on couldn't you I think it'd be in a way, in a way there's a kind of that, that's, that is a, it's an interesting question that isn't it because I think there's an attitude difference now in terms of certainly in my game if somebody decided to cast resurrection at a vampire and there was no um, time limit on it as a games master, I would think that's a fantastic idea. And I love the role-playing potential for that, that the vampire suddenly becomes mortal again. is is brilliant. And would they then stop being evil? What about the castle the vampire's in? There's all sorts of fantastic role-playing opportunities there, isn't there? That if the big bad vampire's turned mortal again. But I think back in those days, and, and I'll come on to this with my, my second choice of, of article, um, in those days, there's still that competitive dimension in gaming very comes across in this um comes across in this magazine the competitive thing that so if you cast resurrection on a vampire and made them mortal the games master would be furious with you and would really want to overrule that because you're spoiling the game by by here's the big bad foe that i've put in the dungeon and you've spoiled it with some trickery it's very competitive, whereas I think now that's less the case. I think people we play with, and a lot of people I've played with over the last few years, would find that a fascinating turn of events in the game, but but not then. I think not then. But but I I, I, dis, I dispute it a little bit because I think what it's the difference, isn't it, between AD and D and uh, basic D and D. So you know the 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 line that has kind of prevailed in that seam of OSR and what you're talking about is that you know uh, that Mulvey spirit of um, rulings, not rules. So if it, you know to be a bit more relaxed about whether resurrections cast on a vampire, whereas. <laughs> I think what's happening in, in Dragon at this time, this time is you're right. Those people who who feel that everything should be nailed down and there should be no question of dispute. And I think um, the schism hasn't uh, isn't apparent in this uh, magazine because it is very much grounded in AD and D. And that's probably why there's a bit of a disclaimer in there. You know, don't listen to these newfangled ideas. Let's stick to the script of. Uh, Yes. Yeah. Yeah. The disclaimer is more about yeah when he because he does 
it does have that line, doesn't it? That these are these are suggest these are not rules; they're suggestions. Which, yes, maybe that is the real reason that those views are. Uh, yeah, there's disclaimers there. <laughs> Weirdo suggestions. No rules. <laughs> <laughs> Who knows where we'll end up? Hello, this is Gaz. And this is Baz. We're your genial, some might even say avuncular hosts of What Would The Smart Party Do podcast. Where you'll find a special blend of gaming chat, quality interviews, deep dive reviews, advice, war stories and the occasional splash of actual play. So, draw up a comfy chair, get a brew going and join the smart party. Level up your gaming mojo at whatwouldthesmartpartydo.com or find us on iTunes, Spotify and all other reputable purveyors of podcasts. So, so what else uh, catch, catches your eye in this? Well, there's a couple of good, uh, keeping on the theme of uh, rules and rulings and, and problems within play, there is a couple of good um, pieces by, one by Lewis Pulsifer, of course, and someone called Tom Armstrong. And Lewis Pulsifer's piece is about what to do when a PC becomes too powerful. And specifically, he, he seems to focus on them getting a powerful magic item. Um, so D&D is famous, you know, for its powerful magic items. You know, it's wonder fireballs with 100 charges, that kind of thing. I mean, I mean, there is, <laughs> you kind of think the, the obvious answer is don't give them a wonder fireball. How did they get it? It talks about you know, the game, the DM, the DM finds that a player has acquired a powerful item. And it begs the question, how did he find it? How did the player find it? You, you're the DM. You gave it. You gave it to them. Why did you give it to them? You know, as it kind of suggests that you're still in the world of rolling on random tables. You know, like monster treasure type, treasure type, or right type whatever type D or B or whatever you used to do. Roll on the table, and uh, oh, you've got a wand of fireballs with. Hang on, oh, a hundred charges. All oh, right, I'll have to give you that because the dice have told me to. So there's a bit of that to it, but it's an interesting article about you know, how to deal with it. And I suppose what's what interesting about it is it does talk about, and again, this feels a bit like it goes against the grain of a lot of the other things in the magazine. It does talk about having a word with the player outside the game and saying, well, you know, it's a bit powerful. Do you want to just re- retire your character for a bit or just lose the item because it's kind of spoiling things? I think it's kind of interesting that. Yes, you know, because a lot of a lot of the content of the magazine is is about, as we said, rulings and rules, and trying to fix problems by an interpretation of a rule. So, trying to say, can I can I do this? Can I do that? What do the rules say? Whereas what Lewis Pulsifer says, he does come up with he does come up with one one suggestion about trying, trying to basically kill the player, which I think not the, the player, character. the character, kill, kill the character. character. Yeah, important <laughs> distinction, I think. Although I've played with the odd player, you might want to kill. But anyway, <laughs> but yeah, he talks about that, but he quickly moves on from that by saying that that does seem unfair. Um, but he does talk about having a chat outside the game, which is interesting. Yeah, not, good- not so much. Not so much now. It's not interesting now, but I think it is then. You know. Yeah, well, I remember that uh, advice appearing in his Dungeon Master's Guide that appeared in yeah. White Dwarf. Speak to the player. If that doesn't work, just kill the character. That's it. <laughs> Uh, fair advice there, um, yeah. and I think another, the other the other interesting bit of this article is a, is a piece by Tom Armstrong, and what drew me to this was Tom Armstrong clearly has the same view of us about the Prime Directive. 
because it's an article about what to do if your players have read the Dungeon Master's Guide or the Monster oh, Manual or want, or want to read it. Um, and it did make me chuckle because I saw, yeah, that, was the, that was the attitude back then, wasn't it? Of the, the Games Master was the holder of secrets and the players weren't allowed to read the Dungeon Master's Guide in the same way that we had that prime directive about, you know, I couldn't, I couldn't get hold of Cults of Terror for RuneQuest. I couldn't read Cults of Terror. But you let me read Cults of Prax, but I couldn't read Cults of Terror. I wasn't allowed to buy that no. because there were secrets in Cults of Terror that only you could know. Yes. You know, and it made me laugh. It's kind of interesting to read because attitudes have now changed so much, haven't they? You know, the number of times you play with players who will say, ah, well, you know, we wouldn't, our characters wouldn't know that. Our characters wouldn't know this. Our characters wouldn't know that, even though the players do, because they've all read the books or whatever game you play, and they've all read the books and they all know things that, that they then say their characters wouldn't know. And again, you come back to that idea that competitive edge running through the magazine, the idea that it's, although it, people say there are no winners, no losers in a role-playing game, it still has a competitive dimension. The war gamey side of it is still very much there because you can't read the Dungeon Master's Guide and the Monster Manual because that will give you a competitive edge as a player. And we can't have that. We're not having that. It doesn't really necessarily come up come around to the idea that players will pretend that they don't know things because their character wouldn't know the character wouldn't know that only silver can hit a werewolf if they haven't encountered a werewolf before whereas what he's saying is oh well if they read that you see they'll, they'll have a competitive edge it's just kind of interesting that attitude is is very much there i think in that article and in in other articles in the magazine there are uh, resources, it's not all D&D, there are resources and uh, articles for other games as well. Um, there's a particularly good uh, scenario for Gamma World set in the uh, subways, uh, teaches a, it treats the subways like a dungeon, um, the cavern of the subterrain, um, but it is quite flavours and uh, has some interesting encounters in there and I was actually looked at this earlier in the year um, to uh, adapt but uh, I, I ended up doing it but I think it is one to revisit and there's also a good article uh, well I say it's a good article it's a, it's a good idea for top secret looking at um, background jobs for mm. agents because it, it just gives a little bit more flavour to tradecraft you know what 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 you could be doing um behind the scenes you know what 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 are the kind of jobs that agents could be doing you know being a fine art dealer or something like that but i find with a lot of these even though there's a lot of material the quality of the writing is patchy isn't it so for example the cleric one and this undercover job guide it feels much like a list um a list of things and underdeveloped um ideas as though they pitch an idea and it doesn't get taken very very far and um, you know they're not all like that some of them are really well edited and put together and we should mention uh, the regular column Lehman's Tiny Hut by uh, Leonard Lakofka who uh, sadly uh, passed away uh, last month and he was part of the uh, group with uh, Guy Gax and Arnson playtesting D&D in the early years. And his contribution is a proper, it's like a, 
almost like a mini supplement, giving backgrounds to Greyhawk characters. So there, there is a variance in quality in writing, I, I, I'd say, across the magazine. And I, mean, I, I suppose you can you read this magazine and you realise it, it kind of bolsters D&D's popularity, doesn't it? Because if you were a D&D player back in 1981, you know, particularly if you were in America, where this was probably more freely available, it, it would have been a great thing, wouldn't it? It would have been a great magazine. It would have really kept you on, on board with the game, wouldn't it? Because there's so much material in there. And like you say, some of it some of it might be a patchy quality, but, but it's still material, isn't it, you know, about the game you're playing. And when we were that age, you know, buying White Dwarf, you were always craving an article about the games you were playing. When I was running Traveller, you always always oh, great. There's a tra- something about Traveller in there, something about RuneQuest in there. And... When you look at Dragon, it, it's just full of all this stuff about D&D that if you were playing D&D, it would have been, like say, a treasure trove of um, of things. And that, that would have kept the game going. That that could have kind of keep, keeps it rolling on, doesn't it? Stops people. It's a brilliant marketing, isn't it? Because it stops people's attention going elsewhere because it's almost like every issue. So I think there's a thing about um, the bounty hunter, isn't there? There's a character class in it, the bounty hunter. Um, in this issue and you know it, it's questionable whether you need a bounty hunter character class i mean you could have the characters that you have normally as bounty operating as bounty hunters couldn't you you know why can't a wizard be a bounty hunter why can't a thief be a bounty hunter but that said it's doing the thing of presenting you with more content more material for your game so if you're again a bit bored of dnd thinking of playing rune quest well here do you want to be a bounty hunter oh go on then all right <laughs> that's the I'm sure that might not be their intention, but I think that's the effect of it, isn't it? That you know, there's this big glossy magazine with tons of stuff for your game. Stops you, stops you playing something else. I want to uh, talk about the pitch of this because you said something interesting there. You know that when we were younger, uh, we would love something like this. But it, I think part of the reason why this never appealed is partly because we. Weren't necessarily playing all the games in it. Like Dean, it features D and D heavily and other TSR games. But I also think that it it, it is pitched at um, an older audience. And I said this about different worlds that it very much is geared towards the um, college audience of uh, established gamers um, who may have done war games and then they're kind of branching out into into role playing games. I mean. We need to talk about the cover, don't we? Because because uh, covers by Boris Yajehov uh, or Boris, as he was better known, he, he was uh, he, his style of art was pre- very prevalent in the seventies and early eighties, and he was in high mm. demand for book covers and for his calendars and posters, and he appeared in lots of the um, VHS. Um, <laughs> Covers, you know, of those uh, straight to <laughs> video uh, yes. fantasies. I think, I think it mentions it in the article that around this time there was uh, five fantasy films being launched in that year in uh, eighty one. So this is a boom time. And mm. what, what I always say about this: so the cover depicts um, a, a dragon emerging from a, a shell. There's something of the fae about it, you know, because it's got um, dragonfly wings and there's like yeah. strange organic shapes behind and a naked woman looking upon this uh, dragon. <laughs> it, there's an interview, an extended interview in, in there with uh, Boris Yejehov, uh, and in his, uh, and it, it, you read the article, and it wouldn't be out of place in Playboy magazine. 
because he's talking about his book of erotica that he's uh, produced because it allows him uh, more license than he can do on uh, on covers and it, it made me think that that art that generic art that was out there and was often on covers never really inspired me and and I don't I'm not sure it still does you know whereas you look at artists that were illustrating games with had far more influence on my imagination than these generic artists did yeah yeah I know what you mean it is it is a it's an odd piece isn't it that that interview stroke article because like you say it's, it's it's always awkward anyway isn't it the kind of naked naked women thing you know it's it, it sits at, at odds really with yeah it's a gaming uh gaming art you know but then you wonder don't you whether i mean is gaming art because it's built around a game where people have armor and weapons and all sorts of things exactly, that yeah. you don't you don't get naked women because it's it's supposed to represent a game and people don't wander around naked in games they, they wear armor so it's more more in line whereas there's a kind of schism i suppose between that fantasy art because it's not his his work's not for games is it it's not representing exactly, a game yeah. it's not it's not saying right we've got this game set in it's set around ancient greece so we need some ancient Greeks, Greek warriors, and one of them needs to be a woman. Right, okay, well, well, we'll put them in Greek armor, even if it's a woman, because that's what the game is. Whereas these are just, I suppose they back erotica, really. They are erotica, aren't they? I mean, his, his pictures generally are erotica, aren't they? Yeah. I think that's how he's described on Wikipedia, fantasy and erotica. <laughs> that's his, that's a stocking thread. <laughs> but I think there's something about it. It's just a, more about um, technique than it is mm. about the subject matter. So it's. It, I always say this about uh, Bob Ross. I know that um, I'll lose uh, friends by saying this, but to me, what he's doing isn't, it, it's just like a generic um, using paint techniques to convey something. And I think it's the same, it's not inspiring um, Boris's work because it's just, he likes drawing naked people with, yeah, yeah. Uh, non-specific back, uh, landscapes in the background so you might have a floating rock in the air or, but it, that doesn't kind of make you think oh yeah yes. yeah, what, I what, yeah yeah i know what you mean you look at it and you think well what are they doing why has he got no clothes on what are they doing where are they well yeah what contextual whereas if you look at a, a good contrast is sort of rodney matthews isn't it because you look at a rodney matthews picture and a rodney matthews picture will will have a little it almost has a story built into it so it might exactly. be some goblin little goblin characters riding beetles with a weird city in the background or something and you immediately think all oh, right well so there's the world these people these things live in and they're, they're riding beetles and or whatever and there's there's something in it that yeah that contextualizes it a bit, even though it's fantasy and it's it's might be outlandish in some respects. It it's contextualized and gives you a gives you a little worldview. Whereas those don't, they just they they're almost like I mean they're almost like like sort of slightly kinky pictures to put on fantasy novels to get get the dads to buy it, thinking, ah, hey, what's this? And I think it 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 just goes to that idea that these uh, the audience is uh, framed differently than its UK counterparts. So whereas in you know, Games Workshop's very successful model that they're still using today is pitched at the younger 
um, school uh, audience that they hope to um, maintain through. Um, but yeah. but if some some fall away, it doesn't matter. We just keep bringing new people into this. Whereas this this very much feels like it's uh, you know you might an older person, somebody in the twenties or thirties, might pick this up and have it yeah. alongside their other magazines and, and, and go through it. It does it. It does the, other magazines. What do you mean? Yeah. <laughs> pitch a naked woman on the front. It'll go with my other magazines. And part of its uh, pitch, looking at games design and assuming that the audience uh, who read this would not only want to consume the um, games that are in it, but would want to create their own. Yes, I thought that was interesting. That that there's the article on games design. Yeah, it's. Uh... Yeah, it's it's interesting. You don't you don't often see that in these magazines, do you? That, that they are talking to people as if you might want to design your own game. Yeah, and uh, it's it's a collectible series that takes you through the stages of how to design a game and what, what your starting point should be. Also, in here, there's a article reaching out um, to D and D players for uh, basic role playing because at this mm-hmm. time, um, Chaosium had uh, started marketing basic role-playing separate from um, Call of Cthulhu or RuneQuest. Anything else that you want to pick up? Um, I quite like the, um, the they do reviews of miniatures, which is interesting because they give, they have this weird scoring system, don't they, for the miniatures. So they have some like Ralpartha miniatures. They have a bit photograph um, and then they talk about the figure and then they have this weird scoring system that I didn't, unless I missed it, I couldn't quite work out what, what the scores are for. So you could you could either have prop. Prop. I don't know what prop means. I don't know what prop means. Yeah, I get prop six or prop seven. I think you got prop, debt, anim, and tech. Now I think I think anim reading the review seems to be something about how animated the figure is, how how it, how it looks moving, because it talks about a storm giant and says this looks very like he's moving into the bending into the wind, wheeling his axe, and it gets a good score for anim. So I'm assuming that means, yeah, it looks like you there's, there's movement in the figure in some descri- some description some sort. But tech, I don't know, is that tech technical expertise of the way the figure's made? Maybe. But I don't know what prop and debt. I don't. I don't know. Oh, I, I missed won- it. Does it tell I, you? No, it doesn't tell you. No, I wonder. It tell you, does it? <laughs> the typical D and D, typical D and D mob doesn't tell you. <laughs> Write in and ask what it means. Um, I, I wonder if it means proportion. Oh, it might be, yeah. In depth is detail. Would it? Would it really? Oh, yes, I, I think you're right. Yes. I wonder. It wouldn't have cost cost them a lot more characters, would it? Just to write it out in full. No, just that's go? what I mean. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, pro- yeah, proportions. Yes, I bet that's it. And detail. Yes, that is what it'll be, isn't it? Yeah, the detail on the figure and it, whether it's proportioned. Hard to know whether. I mean, to be fair, proportion. I mean, you know, it's a beholder figure. It's always not. It's not proportioned right. His head's too big and his tentacles are too small. How would anybody know, really? Wait, what? Yeah. What are you basing it on? What are you basing proportions on? Yeah, one, one to ten. Yeah, yeah, things get tend to get about six, seven, and eight. I think a few things get an eight. Hold on, Grenadier miniatures or whatever it is. Well, that was quite funny. That that they, they felt the need to break it down into quite a detailed analysis of each figure. A lot of these articles and the editorial uh, as well comes with quite a lot of disclaimers, doesn't it? 
Um, mm. You know, as you mentioned previously, like the litigious one, but this one with the uh, um, miniature saying, you know, you know, we show them, they sell them. Don't contact us asking where you can get all of these things. So we don't know. <laughs> yes. you, need, you need to find out yourself. Yeah, yeah. stop bothering us. I don't know yeah. where you're going to get this giant spider from with a prop score of seven. I don't know. In the in the previous uh, issue, they must have mentioned uh, Beholder Zine, which we've covered on the uh, site, and um, it looks like they they were inundated with uh, American readers bombarding Beholder magazine over in the UK, trying to get hold of it, and uh, they written back said, "We don't exist anymore. Stop sending us money." Any <laughs> money? I post Postal game. I bet yeah. their dad thought they were starting a cult as well. Yeah. <laughs> all these... Sending him checks from America. Yeah, all these dollar bills landing on the door, man. <laughs> yeah. yeah mate. But it's a it's a good it's a good it is a good issue. Very, very interesting. Very full. Lots and lots lots in there. You know, I'll tell you what there isn't much of though. No, this is interesting. Not much in the way of adverts. There isn't, is there? No. There's not much in the way of advertisements at all. There, there are some adverts. Um, with, for, I think there's one for Aftermath and one for is it Arms Law, Magic Law, whatever it is. Um, but they're big, big, full half-page ads. There's, there's nothing in the way of the, all those quirky things from White Dwarf that you would get. All the little, little adverts for odd game shops here, there, and everywhere. You know, I mean, yeah. maybe there's no point saying you own a game shop in. Oklahoma or something like that when it's an American magazine because people live hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of miles away. So maybe there's just less, <laughs> just less kind of call for it. But I thought that was interesting. The other interesting thing about it as well is some of the some of the least funny cartoons and comic strips I've ever read in my life. Yeah, I was going to say that. Like, it, like, like comic, comic. There's a, there's a couple of comic strips and a couple of few cartoons, and that they. they They've been put together by people with no sense of humour. If someone said they've been put together by a computer, I would believe them. If there was some kind of test to see if you can inject humour into a computer, artificial intelligence humour, and it's obviously a failed experiment because they're not funny. If you criticise the Travellers or you criticise Thrud in White Dwarf, have a look at Dragon because you realise how well served you were in the UK with things that were at least at least moderately funny. Let's give an example. Okay, so we've got a... A wizard and a knight standing over a knight who's dead and there's a man with a big nose with an apron and it seems that the knight is saying you idiot i said we need a cleric not a clerk i'll read that again just in case you you miss it, it might have been my delivery you idiot i said we need a cleric not a clerk no i think that's a I think it's worth noting as well. That is the best cartoon in the magazine. Because <laughs> at least at least there is at least there is some semblance of a joke. It's not funny. It's not funny, but you can see the joke. You can see the joke. All right. Cleric. If you're an American clerk, they would pronounce it clerk, don't so cleric clerk. Yeah, all right. He's misheard and he's brought some fellow with a with a, I mean, he's got an apron on and you have a pen if he was a clerk. Anyway. Um I wonder yeah, if it's, that, it's a shop clerk. Oh, it, yes. Yeah, you see. That another American thing. But, yeah. yeah. Shop but that, but that's, the, that's at least that has a, some destructive traditional structures of a joke. The, other, the others don't even have that. I don't, I don't, I don't, 
terrible. <laughs> yeah. So this is uh, Dragon Magazine. There's plenty of material in there. Just don't look at the cartoons. Okay. Thanks, uh, thanks, Blighty. Okay, Derek. Bye. Bye. I'd like to dedicate this bonus podcast to the Patreon supporters, past, present and future, who keep this podcast going. You can find out more at patreon slash thegrognardfiles.com. Like everyone and everything else, we found producing this each month a bit tougher than normal in 2020, not least because we normally plot, devise and record this when we meet face to face. All of our interactions have been remote over the last 10 months, so it's created some challenges. But despite these conditions, I feel that we've produced some strong episodes. And what's kept us going with the desire to continue improving the quality of the content has been the support of people listening. It's easier to keep production momentum when there's a new review, a passing comment on Twitter or Facebook or on the Discord server. It really does put fuel in your tank. The monthly coins in the beret each month is an incentive for us to continue and keep improving what we offer. This covers the cost of the full hosting of the site at wordpress.com and the other related subscriptions that we need to pay. It allows us to buy new equipment, such as Blythe's new microphone. We've also subscribed to Zoom this year to record our meetings and to host games for Patreon supporters. The funds also help with additional projects such as the Grogzine, where we commission artwork. We also use it to buy modules and games to create content for the podcast. The latest to arrive is Strike Force Shantypole for West End Games Star Wars. It means very much to have your support, so thank you. There's some additional benefits to being a patron, including a hard copy of our next Grogzine due out in 2021, access to the monthly one-shot club, early access to events, new material and resources within the Grog Locker, and a monthly newsletter where we make recommendations. I'm currently enjoying the audiobook version of John Cooper Clark's autobiography, for example. Let me mention some new patrons who have joined us over the past couple of months so I can thank them. Thank you to John Hagen, Christopher Goodwin, Paul Braithwaite, Graham Rose, David Castle, and Guy Milner of the Burn After Running blog. Thank you. At the sofa so good level, I like to roll on a table and give a virtual gift or experience relevant to the topic under discussion. This time, I'm heading to the expert rules of D&D. A new pre-loved copy has been kindly sent to me by Andy Cousins. Thank you. So, the first armchair adventurer into the Patreon catacombs is... Matt Farr, who rolls a 12. Classic, a Minotaur. Don't forget your bobbin of string, Matt. Next is Max, who, with a 16, is waylaid by a rust monster until someone can get some WD-40 to him. Sneaking into the complex in the early hours of the morning, probably chasing yet another deadline, is Mark Lamming, friend of the show, an illustrator of The Collected Daily Dwarf. He rolls a 14, an owl bear, a night owl bear, very fitting. Get to bed, Mark. Next is Jim McCarthy. He's written extensive reports of his grogmeat games. You'll find links in the grognardfiles.com. He encounters 18, a scorpion, 
comma, giant. Watch the stinger, Jim. In a dim corner, looking carefully at a treasure trove, is James Sevlin, who sees five, a cockatrice. Oh no, the dungeon's most deadly budgie. In his courtly garb is a kind and gentle knight, Eugene Carey, who played Dragon Warriors with me recently, hunting down the hobgoblin Old Ned. This time he's faced with six, a displacer beast. He doesn't know whether he's coming or going. Finally, it's Ian from the Roll to Save podcast, which is the newsletter podcast of the month. Thanks to its detailed and interesting study of the history of RPGs, he's got four, a black pudding. Don't worry, it's not one of those sticky ones. It's from Berry Market. Enjoy it with a bit of mustard. Thank you to you all. Once again, this bonus is dedicated to you. Coming very soon is episode 44, which features Dave Morris and is all about Dragon Warriors. Until then, thank you and adios amigos. I fell in love with an alien being whose skin was jelly, whose teeth were green. She had the big bug eyes and the death ray glare. Feet like water wings, purple hair. I was over the moon. I asked her back to my place and then I married the monster from outer space.